3: On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to deal with somebody who's truly immortal and who has become surprisingly controversial, which tells you more about the time we live in. In April 1962, President John F. Kennedy hosted a Nobel Prize dinner at the White House. He said, quote, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent, of human knowledge, that has ever been gathered together at the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Now, think about that tribute. It's a little bit exaggerated. Jefferson was one of the most extraordinary of the founding fathers, not only very, very smart, a great writer, but somebody who had an almost universal interest in knowledge. In a different era, he might have been considered a Renaissance man, but in the colonial period of America, people didn't even think like that. So Jefferson is fascinating. He was controversial in his lifetime, and he is controversial today. He's the founder of the Democratic Republican Party, which is today the oldest political institution in the world. He created the first really competitive presidential race and broke with many of the norms of the British system. He distrusted government, which is what's really remarkable when you look at the people who today criticize him and are opposed to him. Jefferson somehow came to this belief that freedom was based on the individual and on the individual's relationship with God. And he insisted that on his tombstone, they would only mention three things. This is a man who had spent a lifetime achieving things. He was, quote, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statue of Virginia for Religious Freedom and father of the University of Virginia. I would argue that in many ways, Jefferson personified the spirit of freedom and had developed out of it something much more profound than most of his colleagues as founding fathers. He deeply distrusted all governments. He didn't just deeply distrust the British government, he deeply distrusted the American government. And as a result, while he was the ambassador in Paris, as the American Constitution was being developed, he wrote his very, very close friend, James Madison, and said that he would oppose the adoption of the Constitution unless they added a Bill of Rights. And the whole fabric of American life has revolved around these 10 amendments that came to define our rights. And remember, this is always one of the most difficult things to get across because it's counterintuitive. The Bill of Rights are designed to limit government not to limit people. The Bill of Rights came out of a belief that in fact virtue resides in the people, but the government was always dangerous. Now, Jefferson at the time was the ambassador to France as the French monarchy was collapsing and as they were inexorably moving towards the French Revolution, which is a classic case study of a system that can't control itself. The American Revolution, was a fight over who would govern in America. And it was between basically Americans who saw themselves as successful, independent, standing on their own achievement, and Americans who still were comfortable operating within the framework of the British king and the British government. And that fight ultimately was very controlled. If you go back and you look, when the Founding Fathers won, they were very cautious about what they were trying to set up. And they had a lot of experience. Remember, there are 13 colonies, which means there are 13 constitutions. In several of the colonies, the constitutions fail, so they write more constitutions. By the time they get to Philadelphia to write the Constitution of the United States, these folks had had more experience at writing constitutions than any generation in history. And all of them was aimed at a very core principle because they understood a world different than we do. They knew that the world was dangerous. It was dangerous to their West because Native Americans were still independent, armed, and capable of causing enormous casualties in the constant struggle over who was going to dominate. And remember, the West in this period is around Pittsburgh. We're not talking about the West of Cheyenne, Wyoming. So they're looking one direction at Native Americans, many of them armed both by the British and the French. And the British, of course, loved to subsidize the arming of the Native Americans so they would harass and torment the new United States. At the same time, they were vividly aware of the great power struggle that was underway to see who would dominate Europe. So they knew that between the French, the Spanish, the British, the Prussians, the Dutch, that there was this ongoing, very deep and very powerful struggle of systems much bigger than the current American military of the current American Navy. So on the one hand, in order to protect our freedom, they wanted a government strong enough to offset these dangerous countries. On the other hand, in order to protect our freedom, they wanted to make sure that the government that was strong enough to protect our country couldn't then take over and control us. And in this effort to find a path between the two the future of domination by foreigners and the future of domination by bureaucracy and government at home. Jefferson was one of the leaders in trying to find a way to have us be a genuinely free country, which meant freedom for the individual, not just freedom for the king or the president. Presidents, basically, are just temporarily elected kings. And it's the House and the Senate that make America so much different from the European monarchies. But Jefferson himself, had spent a long and really quite curious life. I'm an amateur paleontologist, and when you visit Monticello, you will find, for example, teeth from mastodons and mammoths. You'll find part of the skeleton of a giant sloth that had gone extinct sometime in the Pleistocene. You'll find that Jefferson is collecting everything. He's fascinated by the world. And that, you know, I always tell people I'm willing to be a Jeffersonian, by which I mean that I will not buy more than half a continent at any one time. So think of that as limited government, and I won't do more than send the Marines to Tripoli without telling the Congress. And by the way, when he bought half a continent, he bought it and then told the Congress. One of the reasons I find Jefferson so complicated to talk about is that he's this mass of contradictions. On the one hand, he wants limited government, unless he decides he wants unlimited government, in which case he briefly deviates buys the whole area that is the Mississippi River Basin. Then he reverts back to wanting limited government. He vetoes a bridge over the Potomac as not the business of government because he's frugal. But then he spends millions buying the West from the French. You try to fit all this into one personality, you begin to realize that if he'd been your uncle, he would have been a very complicated uncle. He also, he was a polymath in the sense that he learned everything in every direction. on one of his trips to europe remember back then if you say i think i'll go to europe it was a long voyage by sailing ship on one of his trips to europe he taught himself spanish by reading spanish novels and you said this image of jefferson wrapped up in a blanket sitting on the deck of the ship gradually going east towards europe and trying to literally teach himself spanish he already had french he also was a person who had a very complicated vision of religion. Jefferson had written at one point that there should be a wall between government and religion. Now, people that interpreted that to mean the government should be anti-religious, that's not what Jefferson said. Jefferson was living in an era when the Church of England was paid for by the government, when the Catholic Church in France was getting government money. And what he was saying was, that no religion should get money from the government. But he did not intend in any way to have government be hostile to religion. In fact, while Jefferson was president, he signed a bill to send missionaries to the Indians. He allowed the treasury building to be used as a church because there were no very large buildings in Washington at that time. And the week that he signed the letter explaining that there would be a wall of separation between church and state, that week he got into a carriage and went up to the capitol where the Capitol was actually used as a church until the 1840s. So it's a little hard to say that he wanted total separation. What he did want is for people to be able to worship freely. He was very open to people finding God in their own way, and he wanted to make sure that the government wouldn't put its thumb on the scales in one direction or another. One of the places I go, when I want to think about the Founding Fathers, there are really, in my mind, three great centers. One is to go to Boston and look at the Adams family, Samuel and John and others, and think about what that whole experience was like there. The second is to go to Philadelphia and to stand in the shadow of Benjamin Franklin. The third is to go to Williamsburg. The Rockefeller Foundation rebuilt Williamsburg in the 1930s. I find every time I go there that the historic part of my soul gets renewed and refreshed. They've done an amazing job. And you can imagine yourself walking down the street where Mr. Jefferson is studying and reading law under Mr. Wyeth, who's one of the great lawyers of that generation, and then going down to one of the taverns, which are still there, and having a libation, and talking about the law, and talking about what's going on in Europe, and talking about the theoretical principles on which freedom should be based. And you have this whole notion that Jefferson was capable of talking about almost anything. Jefferson, first of all, is a reader. He loved to read so much that he actually built a movable desk so that he could, if he was going to go, say, to Philadelphia, which back then was a long trip, he had a desk that he could put in the carriage so that he could work both reading and writing while he traveled. And in that sense, he was constantly trying to improve things. He was constantly looking, can I do it better? Can I do it faster? And Jefferson, I've always thought, was very happy learning and very happy thinking. And if he also had to deal with people, that was all right. But that was not his primary focus.
4: Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Jefferson had grown up in what then was sort of the western part of Virginia. If you look at a map, we we're talking about central Virginia today. But back then, Unlike Washington, who had grown up in the planter part of the state with large homes and elegant dances and people who wore fancy clothes, Jefferson was much closer to the frontier. And he loved the frontier. He loved farmers as a group. And he really felt that virtue was to be found in small towns. In many ways, I think that you would find that in 1896, when William Jennings Bryan gave his speech about mankind, being crucified on the cross of gold. He was, in a sense, channeling Jefferson. And part of the reason that the bitterness between Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton is that Hamilton represents the cities, the moneyed class, bankers, and Jefferson represents all the people who owe money to the cities, the banker class, et cetera. So there's a deep sense in Jefferson's mind that virtue comes from being close to the land and that a nation made up of farmers would by definition be freer and more virtuous than a nation that was made up of manufacturers or of bankers or of big cities jefferson learned enormously fast he went to school in english at 5 he went in latin at 9 he really constantly was learning and he learned basically from a tutor a mr douglas who's a clergyman from scotland he learned every day. He read constantly. He built a huge library. In fact, the base of the Library of Congress was Jefferson's Library. It about 4,000 volumes at the time, which was a huge library back then. Being Jefferson, of course, he sold it to the Congress. It wasn't an act of civic goodwill. He was trying to pay off some debts. And so he sold the library, which tragically was burned later. But it was the base of having a Library of Congress, which is today the largest library in the world. So it's come a long way from Jefferson's first 4,000 volumes. In that era, colleges were being formed, law schools were being formed, but he really was largely taught directly by tutors. And then he went to George Wythe, and George Wythe's law office still exists at Williamsburg. And you can imagine in the morning Jefferson getting up, having a cup of tea or coffee, maybe a small piece of bread, going in and literally back then they called it reading the law because that's what they were doing. This was before you got law schools and tenured professors and high tuition costs. So Jefferson is living in Williamsburg, which was the center of politics in that period for Virginia. So when the House of Burgesses, which was their legislature, when it was in session, people came from all over the state. And if you were a young person studying under George Wythe, Wythe knew everybody. And so you inevitably would end up at dinner, surrounded by the whole state over the course of time. Jefferson came naturally to him to be engaged in politics. And in 1768, he's elected to the House of Burgesses. Now, he also began, and this is very typically Jeffersonian, he began to level a mountaintop at Monticello. I mean, this is a guy who dreamed big, thought big, built big, and was permanently in debt because of all the things he wanted to do. And by 1780, he began building Monticello, which is one of the most remarkable buildings of the 18th century. And if you have never been there, it is really worth your while to go and to look at what he designed, how it was built, the degree to which it was at that time a remarkably advanced building, and also little side things you'll notice when you tour. For example, Jefferson tended to sleep sitting up. People thought it was better for you because if you lay down, you could get water in your lungs. And so it was really sort of a norm. Now Jefferson himself was very tall, so you have this tall guy in a long bed sitting up. Jefferson finally gets really lucky and inherits 11,000 acres of land and 135 slaves which means, of course, he quit practicing law. Unlike some people who loved practicing law, Jefferson had earned a living. Now he didn't have to earn a living, so he didn't. It's interesting that Jefferson, in that very same time period, wrote an article called A Summary View of the Rights of British America. So 1774, the same year he's inheriting land. And he says, resolved that it be an instruction to the deputies when assembled in General Congress with the deputies from other states of British America, to propose to the said Congress that an humble and dutiful address be presented to His Majesty, begging leave to lay before him, as Chief Magistrate of the British Empire, the united complaints of His Majesty's subjects in America, complaints which are excited by many unwarrantable encroachments and usurpations, attempted to be made by the legislature of one part of the empire, upon those rights which God and the laws have given equally and independently to all. Now notice that you're the forerunner of the Declaration. Where do the rights come from? Those rights which God and the laws. And Jefferson would have argued, as would most of the Founding Fathers, that the law was in fact the systemic implementation of God's will, and therefore that the rule of law was central to the rule of freedom but that they were both based on God. This is a radical statement. Hard to recognize today how radical it is because it's saying that the rights don't come from the king. The rights come from God. And it is the forerunner of what he will write two years later. So it's important to remember, you have this sudden explosion of energy in the late 1760s, early 1770s, partially brought about because in winning the Seven Years' War, or as we called it in the New World, the French and Indian War, the French were eliminated as a threat. And now, not having to be afraid of the French, the Americans looked up and said, well, if we don't have to be afraid of the French, why are we paying all this money to the British Crown? And the British Crown basically said, well, because we own you. And the Americans said, actually, you don't. Our patriotism comes from God, not from the court. And we repudiate the idea that you owe us. There's a great statement, a man who was quite elderly by that point, I think in his early 80s, who had fought in the American Revolution. And somebody came to him and said, why did you fight? Was it the Tax Act? Was it the Stamp Act? Was it the imposition of taxes? Why did you end up fighting? And he said, young man, we intended to be free and they intended for us not to be free. And so we fought and now we're free. And I think it was this sense which you see suddenly coalesce between 1770 and 1776 in ways that are amazing. You could not predict in 1770 that six short years later they would be passing the Declaration of Independence. Now, Jefferson was a little bit shy and he understood that his great strength was not as a debater or an arguer. He was not a courtier. He was not a man who could go around and win over. And in fact, John Adams said that he was silent for his entire first year. He was elected in 1775 to the Continental Congress. And this is what Adams wrote in his autobiography. Mr. Jefferson had now been about a year a member of Congress but had attended his duty in the House but a very small part of the time, and when there had never spoken in public, and during the whole time I sat with him in Congress, I never heard him utter three sentences together. The most of a speech he ever made in my hearing was a gross insult on religion in one or two sentences, for which I immediately gave him the reprehension which he richly merited. So you have the sense of Jefferson being taciturn, quiet, watching, learning, thinking, and then in 1776, he is asked to help write the Declaration of Independence. And there is no question that he developed the core language of that declaration. He's also elected in 1776 to the Virginia House of Delegates where he's appointed to revise Virginia law. Remember, all 13 of the colonies are going through the same process. He helped create the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. And this is extraordinarily important because it moves from just a political argument to a profound argument about liberty and a profound argument about the very nature of your relationship to the king and your relationship to God. The General Assembly in Virginia appointed five men to a committee of revisers to review the law and to redraft them for the independent state. Three of the five men were primarily responsible. They included Thomas Jefferson, George Wythe, and Edmund Pendleton. Jefferson drafted the majority of the bills. So while he was quiet, he was busy. But his strength was in the written word where he had time to think and where he could write with extraordinary elegance in a way that very few people have been able to equal. In 1779, when Jefferson had been elected governor of Virginia, the 126 bills that the committee he served on had drafted were presented to the General Assembly, most of them were not adopted or even seriously considered. However, Bill 82, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which called for a separation of church and state, was considered and finally adopted in 1786. Notice, by the way, that sometimes these wave effects take time. You have to think of them as a video rather than a snapshot. and. What isn't possible in frame one may be overwhelmingly possible by frame 30. And that's what's happening in this period. This famous bill, the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, adopted in 1786, although it had been drafted initially a decade earlier, it says, we, the General Assembly of Virginia, do enact that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess, and by argument to maintain, their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. Now think about that. You and I live in a time when there are many countries where you can be put to death for believing the wrong things. We live in a time when there are many countries when you can be put in jail for believing the wrong things. And yet here they are in the late 18th century, laying out a frame of reference that liberates people from government and says your religious beliefs are up to you and you will not be punished, you will not be fined, you will not be sent to jail because you are protected in your right to approach God as you see fit. When Jefferson learned that the bill had passed finally after all those years, He had it translated into French and Italian and distributed as widely as possible because he thought that religious liberty was one of his greatest achievements. James Madison, his close friend, later wrote that the Virginia statute for religious freedom, quote, is a true standard of religious liberty, its principle the great barrier against usurpations on the rights of conscience. As long as it is respected and no longer, these will be safe. And as we go through some of our current fights and we watch the government encroach upon religious liberty, and we watch the woke left trying to impose their radical values on people of religion. You can understand how truly central Jefferson was in helping develop a very, very different approach.
4: Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport, and me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Now, Jefferson was involved in much more than just religious liberty. He actually believed that's something which I wish we could get back into the current political environment. He actually believed that knowledge mattered. And he actually believed that education mattered. In 1778, he drafted a bill on education entitled, quote, a bill for more general diffusion of knowledge. Now, this is one of Jefferson's great passions. Here's what Jefferson himself wrote. Whereas it appeareth that, however, certain forms of government are better calculated than others to protect individuals in the free exercise of their natural rights, and are, at the same time, themselves better guarded against degeneracy, yet experience hath shown that even under the best forms, those entrusted with power have, in time and by slow operations, perverted it into tyranny. Let me repeat this because it sort of fits the world we're currently living in. Even under the best forms, those entrusted with power have, in time, and by slow operations, perverted it into tyranny. Jefferson goes on to say, And it is believed that the most effectual means of preventing this would be to eliminate, as far as practical, the minds of the people at large, and more especially, to give them knowledge of those facts which history exhibiteth, that possess thereby of the experience of other ages and countries, they may be enabled to know ambition under all its shapes and prompt to exert their natural powers to defeat its purposes. And whereas it is generally true that people will be happiest whose laws are best and are best administered, and that laws will be wisely formed and honestly administered, in proportion as those who form and administer them are wise and honest. Whence it becomes expedient for promoting the public happiness that those person whom nature hath endowed with genius and virtue, should be rendered by liberal education, worthy to receive and able to guard the sacred deposit of the rights and liberties of their fellow citizens, and that they should be called to that charge without regard to wealth, birth, or other accidental condition or circumstance. But the indigence of the greater number disabling them from so educating at their own expense, those of their children whom nature hath fitly formed and disposed to become useful instruments for the public, It is better that such should be sought for and educated at the common expense of all than that the happiness of all should be confided to the weak or the wicked. Now, if you go back and reread that and you realize that our current situation, schools that don't teach, teachers that don't educate, total avoidance of history, dumbing down of mathematics, giving people passing grades so they feel good even if they know nothing, you can sense that we have arrived at a counter-Jeffersonian moment. When everything Jefferson feared in terms of ignorant people giving up their freedoms are far too close to becoming a reality, and it's why Jefferson is always worth revisiting and thinking about. Jefferson himself, by the way, gets to be elected governor and is a terrible governor. He doesn't like power, although he's brilliant at using it when he has to, and when he's president he's brilliant at using power. But in the period of 1779 to 1781, the British army was rampaging through Virginia. There was an effort to crush the rebellion, and Jefferson is really put in an awkward position. He's not an effective wartime governor. It's not his strength, and as a result, I think he would say that his governorship was one of the least impressive of his activities. However, being Jefferson, he's done to just stop. While he's governor, he also writes his only book notes on the state of Virginia. He didn't intend to write or publish it. And he actually worried that their publication would do more harm or good. But he says things he really deeply believes in. And again, he goes back to freedom of religion. In Query 17, Religion, Jefferson defended separation of church and state saying, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Again, he's arguing that you have freedom and that you shouldn't be taxed to pay for their beliefs but that they should therefore be allowed to have their beliefs without the government interfering. He actually took the manuscript to his book to Paris and he contracted a printer who printed 200 copies. Jefferson's little book on notes in the state of Virginia was sufficiently controversial that James Madison and George Wythe put copies in the college library rather than giving them to students saying such an indiscriminate gift might offend some narrow-minded parents. In Paris, Jefferson gave a few copies to close friends and confidential persons, writing in each copy a restraint against publishing it. However, a copy fell into the hands of a bookseller who, according to Jefferson, employed a hireling translator and was about publishing it in the most injurious form possible. To keep that from happening, Jefferson entered into agreement for the translation into French with the highly respected writer Abbé Morellet. Unfortunately, Jefferson and Morellet had different ideas as to what the translation meant. Jefferson wanted the translation to be a strict word-for-word translation of his text. Morellet, however, believed that the translator's job was to be an active collaborator and ended up changing the work. Jefferson was very displeased. Jefferson then turned to John Stockdale, an English publisher agreed to print the work but told Jefferson, I know there is some bitter pills relative to our country. After all, this was shortly after we had defeated the British and earned our independence. On August 14, 1787, Jefferson wrote to Stockdale that he'd received the initial copies. In all this period, Jefferson remains active. He is elected delegate to Congress in 1783. Between 1784 and 1789, he serves in France as the commissioner and U.S. minister. In 1787, he wrote to a good friend, Francis Hopkinson, his desire for this position to be silent and to be out of the limelight. And this gives you a flavor of Jefferson that is so oddly contradictory. He says, My great wish is to go on in a strict but silent performance of my duty, to avoid attracting notice, and to keep my name out of newspapers, because I find the pain of a little censure, even when it is unfounded, is more acute than the pleasure of much praise. Now, so here you have this guy who, on the one hand, really is secretive and really doesn't want to be noticed. On the other hand... He's active in politics, he's governor of the state, he's ultimately going to be Secretary of State and Vice President and then President of the United States. And that sort of captures Jefferson. He is a very complicated person, of enormous willpower, great patience and discipline, enormous capacity for work, and he's just really, really smart. You could probably argue that he and Benjamin Franklin were the two smartest of the founding fathers. They were both able to learn almost everything, and they both made major contributions to knowledge. To give you an example of Jefferson's genuinely diverse interests, in 1791, he and his friend James Madison made a botanical tour of the northern lakes, and his most lengthy journal entries was on the fly. The final report was never presented to anybody, but it still exists. So again, here's a guy who has written the Declaration of Independence, served in the Congress, served as governor, served as ambassador, and he's off writing a discourse on the nature of the fly. Jefferson also served on a committee referred in the Society's Minutes of June 16, 1797, as the Bone Committee, whose priority was to procure one or more entire skeletons of the mammoth. In 1807, When Jefferson financed the dig conducted by William Clark at Big Bone Lick, Kentucky, of the over 300 bones that Clark sent back, Jefferson offered the Society any of the fossils that were not already in their collection. On March 3, 1797, Jefferson became President of the American Philosophical Society the day before he became Vice President of the United States. He served as President of the Philosophical Society for the next 18 years. He offered three letters of resignation when the government moved to Washington, D.C., when he retired to Monticello, but the society refused to allow his resignation. They finally accepted his resignation on January 20th, 1815. And so you can see that Jefferson's a complex person with an enormous range of interests. And in the next part, I'm going to talk about Jefferson as president and the extraordinary complex nature of his presidency and of what he did after that. So I hope you'll listen also to Jefferson as an American Immortal in part two on Newt's World. Thank you for listening. You can read more about Jefferson's life and get links to my other Immortals podcast on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer... Is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review, so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter i'm newt gingrich this is newt's world
1: if you love sports and true crime then there's a new podcast from executive producer dan patrick